Before, uh, before I open in prayer, I want to begin this morning with a quote for us to ponder from St. Julian of Norwich. Julian was an English mystic who lived in the 14th century, and her profound work entitled Revelations on Divine Love is also noteworthy from a historical perspective, uh, being the earliest known writing we have uh, from a woman in the English language. In chapter five of this work, St. Julian prays, God of thy goodness, give me thyself. Only in thee I have all. And with this quote still ringing in our ears, let us pray. Father, would you teach our souls this morning that only in you do we have what we need in the most deepest sense? Would you teach us to live in light of eternity? In this life and in the age to come, give us everlasting life. Amen. Well, this morning, our scripture lessons speak of matters of eternity and the human soul. But what even is a soul? We will answer this question this morning from the biblical texts. In Luke 12, we learn to live in light of eternity and that our soul can be required of us at any time. In Psalm 49, which we just recited together, we learn that ransom or judgment awaits our souls after death. And in Ecclesiastes, we learn that worldly pleasures can never satisfy our eternal longings. Will you please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to Luke 12? It's on page 818. Not going to linger here for too long, but this might perhaps be one of the most enduring images in all of Jesus's parables. Luke 12, beginning on verse 16 through 21, of this rich man whose land produced plentifully and rather than viewing his increased wealth as a gift from God to be used for kingdom purposes, he resolves instead to build larger barns in order to store it all up for himself. And we're given a window into this man's inner monologue in Luke 12, 19, where we find him talking to himself. He says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink lemonade and be merry. And here, the man's worldly perspective is set in stark contrast with God's heavenly perspective, which we see in verse 20. But God said to him, fool. That's God's one word assessment of the man and of the situation. In fact, the parable is known as the parable of the rich fool. The point is not simply that the man has been greedy and immoral, although, of course, that's true as well. But in calling the man a fool, Jesus is doing more than moralizing. Jesus is actually questioning the man's grasp on reality at its most fundamental level. In view of eternity, it's not only wrong, but it's actually unreasonable to be so consumed with that which is passing away. Amen? So God says to the man, fool, this night of you, your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? In other words, unbeknownst to the man, he was about to die and he couldn't take any of it with him. Psalm 49 verse 17 says, for when he dies, 
He will carry nothing away. I want to show you this comic strip from the far side that helps to illustrate this point. So here we see a grieving widow dressed in black with a veil, and meanwhile, all her earthly possessions are floating out the window and up into the sky. So we see a piano, a TV, even the dog is uh, being lifted into the clouds against his will. And the caption reads, ah, it's George. He's taken it all with him. Now, the absurdity of this scene really brings home the truth of Jesus' words in a hilarious way. This is why the rich man in the parable is called a fool, not simply because he had no regard for God or the needs of other people, but because in the end, none of it's going to follow him into heaven. In the end, no matter how big his barns are, the man will lose everything. Jesus summarizes the lesson here in Luke 12, 21. So it is with everyone who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Now, I think part of the power of this parable is just the clarity of the message. Jesus goes for the jugular, so to speak, declaring spiritual war on all forms of greed and materialism. As Christians, we are called to live in light of eternity. For we know that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The status of our souls ought to take priority over all material considerations. Do we understand this? Notice that this is the guiding principle behind God's comment in verse 21 and verse 20. Excuse me. This very night, your soul is required of you. And the idea, right, is that we must be ready, ready to be rich toward God, ready to be generous toward others because our souls can be required of us at any time, right? That, that's what it means to live in light of eternity, not just in light of things that are passing away. Our next lesson on eternity and the soul comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 1 and 2. It's on page 518 of your, serv- I mean, of your pew Bible. Will you turn with me there? 518. And here the message is not so much about what will happen to our souls when we die with idols in our life, but what will happen to our souls when we live with idols in our life. What happens when we try to feed our eternal longings for the bread of life with the wonder bread that's on offer in this world? Well, read Ecclesiastes and you'll find out. Ecclesiastes is an utterly unique book in the canon of scripture. Not only does it come across as pessimistic, but at times it can even seem downright irreligious. For example, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, that sounds rather depressing. And then, in the next verse, he adds this sort of melancholy cherry on top, saying, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. But truth be told, I actually love the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the first Bible study that Carissa and I ever led back in college was on Ecclesiastes. Our dorm room was packed full of philosophers and skeptics. And I got to say, if you find it, to be difficult 
to read scripture on your own, or if you've fallen away from a daily discipline of Bible reading, can I just suggest that you pick up Ecclesiastes this week and give it a read? You'll find that it's more than just pessimism and hedonism because it's still God's word. It's still God's breathe, and it actually packs a powerful message if you'll stick with it. Ecclesiastes was written by an anonymous king over Israel and Jerusalem, verse 12. But of course, the traditional view is that King Solomon is the author. And this really fits well with the picture we get here in chapter 1, verse 16, which portrays the author as having acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him. And in chapter 2, verse 9, which summarizes his wealth as surpassing all who were before him in Jerusalem. So both of these descriptions about wisdom and about wealth were famously true of King Solomon. But whether the author is Solomon or not, the point is that he was what the kids these days might call a baller. He was, uh, he was, did I use that anymore? <laughs> Uh, he was what, uh, he was like the ancient Near East version of Jay-Z or, or Elon Musk. He, he tried everything that the world had on offer. He tried it to the max. In fact, he probably, excuse me, um, excuse me. In fact, he portrays his own life as a kind of pleasure experiment. Look at chapter two, verse one. He says to his heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And the point of the experiment is to see if there was anything in the world that could fill the ache in his soul. So he tried laughter and pleasure, verse 2, and thought, what use is it? He tried to cheer his body with wine, verse 3. And when you rely on substances, there's this law of diminishing returns, if you've ever noticed it. After a while, they tend to take away your freedom and offer you less and less of a payoff. He undertook ambitious projects, building houses, planting vineyards, creating gardens and parks and pools. So yeah, the guy was a bit of an overachiever. He amassed great possessions, silver and gold, and the treasure of kings, verse 8. He even shamefully treated other human beings as his own possessions. He tried to satisfy his restless soul with entertainment, hiring professional singers, both men and women. I mean, this guy, basically, he had Netflix, he had Hulu, he had Disney+, Plus, he had Paramount+. Plus. But after hours of binge-watching, his heart still felt empty. And of course, he tried to fill the void with sex, gathering many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Ecclesiastes reminds me of a show that I used to watch all the time in the 90s called Behind the Music. It was on uh, VH1, and every episode was this mini documentary on a rock band like Guns N' Roses or Queen or a pop star like Whitney Houston. And the arc of the story was pretty much always the same. The musicians longed for fame, longed for artistic recognition, amassing great possessions. They slept around only to find that it was never enough. Eventually, their lives would crash and burn. Either they would have to check themselves into a rehab clinic or a member of the band would die of a reckless car accident or their families would fall apart. And because they knew they had tried everything else every once in a while, some of these rock stars 
would even sort of retrace the steps of their own decisions and end up coming to know Jesus. That's precisely the point. The reason why Solomon rattles off this exhaustive list of exploits in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it's not to brag, guys. It's to vulnerably teach young men and women from his own mistakes to present himself as this sort of arch anti-example. King Solomon, who also crashed and burned, is the perfect anti-example because he has tasted more deeply and more decadently of all these pleasures than we can taste of any one of them. And so he's able to say authoritatively, you know my story, so you can trust me when I tell you that it's never enough. It's never enough. It doesn't satisfy the ache. Don't waste your life like I did, pursuing worldly pleasures to fill an eternal longing. No matter how much you have or how much you achieve or who you sleep with, it will never satisfy your soul. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon will go on to say that God has put eternity into man's heart. Isn't that an interesting phrase? And by the end of the book, he lands upon this message, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In other words, our eternal longings need an eternal object. If we're honest with ourselves, we find within ourselves a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy. But that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us. On the contrary, Julian of Norwich refers to these as the natural yearnings of the soul. All desires, unless they be irrational, ought to have a corresponding satisfaction, right? So we experience the desire for food. We experience hunger and there's there's something called food, right? We experience thirst and there's something called water. We experience a sex drive and there's a corresponding satisfaction. And likewise, our eternal longings are satisfied by an eternal object who is God himself. As St. Julian prayed, God of thy goodness, give me thyself. For only in thee have I all. In this sense, Julian, as well as the preacher in Ecclesiastes, they're like those, those Bible belt evangelists, right? Who, who told you at Christian camp that everyone has a Christ-shaped hole in their life. And no matter how much you try to fill it with other things, it's never enough. And you know what, beloved? Call it old-fashioned if you like, but that's just the biblical truth. Now, to be clear, the point is not that wisdom or laughter or wine or houses or vineyards or sex are bad things. The point is that they're not ultimate things. Amen? Did you know that the devil has, ever, has never been able to actually create any pleasures of his own? He's only able to corrupt and cause us to misuse the pleasures that God has given us. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus Christ came that we might have joy and have it evermore. All these pleasures were created by God. You know, they were created by him to be given thanks for, to be enjoyed. But the moment we set our hearts upon them in an ultimate way, the moment we start to offer them something that looks more like worship, we turn them into golden calves. But here's the thing. 
like Solomon, our souls can tell the difference between the real thing and the counterfeit. If we will pay attention, for God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in him. All right, so far we've been challenged by God's word to live in light of eternity. We were exhorted by Jesus to be rich toward God and generous toward men because our souls may be required of us at any time. And Ecclesiastes has presented us with an arch anti-example, demonstrating what happens to our souls when we try to fill our eternal longings with transitory goods. But what exactly is a human soul? Well, in the scriptures, the soul is described as being like the person's inner self, as we see it used in Luke 12, 19. But it's also the part of the self that will survive after the death of our bodies. That's what we find in Psalm 49, verses 15 and 19. Now, we all oftentimes think of our our bodies as somehow containing our souls within them. Isn't that oftentimes how we think about it? But St. Thomas Aquinas believed that there was better biblical evidence to see it the other way around, that our bodies are somehow contained by our souls. Our souls are the life principle, so to speak, that animate our entire bodies. Now, that being said, even though our souls will outlive our present bodies, which are passing away, no matter who we are, human beings are best described not as disembodied souls or just as mere bodies, but as a union of body and soul. That's what human beings are. We will not live on forever as disembodied souls in the clouds. Rather, our disembodied state is only temporary. As we confess each week in the creed, we look for the resurrection of the and the life everlasting, the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. At that time, our souls will be reunited with everlasting, permanent bodies that are no longer subject to death and decay. This is all set forth in the Bible, especially in Old Testament texts like Daniel 12 or New Testament passages like 1 Corinthians 15. But before we can arrive at resurrected bodies that are welcomed into the new creation, we must first have ransomed souls. Ransomed souls. That's what we learn in Psalm 49. Will you turn there with me to Psalm 49 and, and page 442? Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm, and it's an interesting place to find such clear teaching on the state of our souls after death. Often in the Old Testament, teachings on the afterlife are less developed, right? They're more like the acorn than the fully grown oak tree that we find in the New Testament. But every once in a while, we come across a more mature shoot, even in the Old Testament. And that's what we find here. In context, the psalmist is addressing the human tendency to envy the wicked, or the sense of perplexity and injustice we feel when sinful people prosper. In verses 5 and 6, the psalmist writes, Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Have you ever been frustrated by the sense of unfairness in this life? How it often seems like all the wrong people are the ones who get ahead? Well, the psalmist 
is a teacher of wisdom, and he wants to respond to this moral conundrum. In verses 7 through 12, his first move is to remind his readers that cheaters will not be able to cheat death. In fact, death is the great equalizer in that it comes to us all, to the rich and to the poor, to the wise and to the fool, to the man and even to the beast. Verse 12 says that man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. But then the psalmist goes a bit further, intimating that an even greater justice awaits both the righteous and the wicked after our natural death. Concerning the wicked, he says in verse 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, that is the place of the dead. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Now notice the reversal of fortunes. With the upright ruling over the wicked in the afterlife. Do you see this? Meanwhile in verse 15 the righteous are fully vindicated in death. And, it will, in, and will in some way be present with the Lord himself. Who will ransom their souls. The psalmist writes... But God will ransom my, sh- my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. For there is much more that could be said about this theme in this text. But suffice it to say that the theology of the afterlife presented here is very much in keeping with the message of the New Testament. Is it not? That ultimate justice awaits us on the other side of death. That some souls will be ransomed by God and brought into his presence, while others, verse 19, will never again see light. But unlike in the New Testament, the psalmist doesn't know how God will ransom his soul. Right? Because our souls can't be ransomed by our own good deeds. For good deeds are the result of our redemption, the evidence of our redemption, and not the cause. Our souls cannot be ransomed by another person Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. We learn similarly in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that the animal sacrifices could never truly pay for the life of a human being. There is only one sacrifice. There is only one man, the God-man who can ransom our souls from death. To be rich toward God is to follow the way of Jesus. To be ransomed by God is to trust in his sacrifice for our souls. And indeed, to have him is to have the bread of life. This morning, all three of our lectionary readings have centered upon themes of eternity and the human soul. Do you want to know, friends, what it means to live in light of eternity? Do you want to know how to have confidence that your souls will be ransomed after death? This is, a, this is the central question that we should be asking, is it not? Well, I could think of no better way of making this clear and summarizing all that's been said than to point us back to the words of the master himself, Jesus Christ. In John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And he goes on to say to the crowds, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, 
but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, the same way that we possess possess the gospel, into the midst of the people. It's like the bread from heaven coming down. Jesus said man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The bread comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If only Ecclesiastes knew that early on. He concludes in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son of Man and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When our souls are united with our immortal bodies, and we will live with him forever. If we have put our trust in him, who has ransomed our souls. So we're called to believe in him, and we're called to treat him as the true bread of our souls. Let us pray. Father, I feel like there might be people here this morning who feel like they have graduated from this question. Do you know what will happen to you after you die? But your word says that none of us graduates from that question. That all of us will face death alike, the rich and the poor. The just and the unjust. Lord, would you help us to live in light of eternity in such a way that we're believing your promises, that we're walking in your way, and that we are feasting on the bread that you have provided. In Jesus' name, amen.